You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you are in here with me, uh, I'm sorry, because look at how much fun they're going to have. But I, I'm going to pray that we're going to have some fun. If you want to make your way to Exodus, we're going to be in chapter 25. We're looking at one verse, verse 8. While you're headed there, I, I just want to remind you, you might be in a tough spot this year. Things might be tight. Things might be difficult. I've had so many prayer requests. Our church this morning before the service, many of us were praying. There's been so many prayer requests on Realm. I just want to remind you that God answers prayers. This, this whole stage and these musicians playing this morning are an answer to prayers that I've had in my prayer journal for about two years, saying bring more musicians and bring an excited congregation that wants to worship vibrantly. And I'm standing there this morning realizing, you know, you just keep praying. You know, just one more prayer, one more day. Just keep going, and, and hopefully um, you'll get to the point when God says, yep, it's time, good and faithful servant, here is the answer to that prayer. So whatever you're in the middle of this month, this week, today, whatever you're struggling with, dealing with, hoping for, praying for, I just want to remind you that our God hears us, and he answers prayers. Let's take a look at God's word this morning, Exodus Chapter 25, verse 6, on page 688, if you're using one of those hardbound pew Bibles, way at the beginning of our Bible this morning. Exodus 25, verse 8. Uh, God speaking to Moses to command uh, their work to the people. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I might dwell among them. I know it doesn't sound like we have much to deal with here, but I promise there is plenty. Um, Let us pray. Lord, I am asking that you would help me, that you would show us what you're doing to redeem your people from start to finish through the word of God. As we look at this verse and others, Lord, show us the connection, show us what you would have for us. And Lord, it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would would apply this how he will to each and every one of our lives, that as we leave here, worshiping you, also, Lord, being transformed by you and conformed to your will and to your mind. Lord, that you would grow us as worshipers, that you would grow us in right doctrine, that you would help us understand what you have in your revelation to us. And God, like even the song that we sang at the end, that it would be a proclamation, that our lives would proclaim who you are, that we would speak truth, and we would be people of truth because we're your people. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read this one more time. It was so short, I felt like we needed more. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I might dwell among them. Last Sunday, we looked at Genesis chapter 3. If you were here, you remember we had Adam and Eve. Uh, God dwelt with them in the Garden of Eden, and they were in his presence and he in theirs. And then we saw that Adam and Eve sinned. And in that sin, they began to die and could no longer remain in the garden. And so God cast them out and he stationed an angel there with a flaming sword that they would be barred from reaching out and taking from the tree of life and living forever. But God's word also showed us that God is working to send a savior, to bring redemption and to redeem his people so that his people can one day dwell with him in a better garden, in a better way. Well, Exodus 25.8, which we just read, is a picture of God's redemptive salvation, his working 
in a way that will culminate in John chapter 1, verse 14, and then find its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 21.3. If you're not familiar with your Bible, what I've just done is I've said, well, here's some stuff at the beginning, <clears throat> here's some stuff at the pinnacle of the Christmas story, and here's some stuff at the end of the Bible. God makes a way for his cast out people to be redeemed and dwell with him forever. And I hope, God willing, we can see that through the entirety of the Bible in bits and pieces this morning. What I'd like for us to do is to consider how uh, God was dwelling with his people during the Exodus, after he freed them from uh, the Egyptians and led them through the desert. And I want us to see that that's a blueprint for... Jesus dwelling with God's people in the first century during his earthly ministry, which all of that makes possible our ability to dwell with God forever through all eternity. That's my aim this morning. So let's start with this blueprint, Exodus 25, 8. I'm going to read it again. It's so short, I'm just going to keep reading it. They are to make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. When we think about the book of Exodus, what do we think about? We think about Charlton Heston, because some of us just, that's what happens. But when we think about the book of Exodus, we think about the, the plagues and the miracles and the burning bush, right? And we think about uh, the Red Sea and all the amazing stuff and coming out of Egypt, and we go, wow, that's great. <clears throat> but all that's done before we get to chapter 16. So, What's the other 24 chapters about? The book of Exodus cannot solely be about leaving Egypt in those miraculous ways or that would be done. They wouldn't have all the rest of the stuff. No, instead we have the rest of the book that is the giving of the law and the giving of the commandments. It's the instructions for the building of the temple and the building of the altar and the priestly garments. That's where we find all of that. Because the point is not this amazing story of parting the Red Sea. The point is actually what we see right here in Exodus 25, 8. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. The rescue was only part of that. He was bringing them out of captivity, leading them in the desert, giving them the instructions. He was providing for them. He was revealing to them who he was, all so that he could dwell among his people, which is the beginning work, the redemptive process of what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Then the book of Leviticus picks up with more instructions. It's instructions for the priests. It's instructions for the various offerings that need to happen. What's all that about? Well, we see the point in Leviticus, in Leviticus 26, 9 through 12. I'll read it for you. It says, I will return to you, make you fruitful, and multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old grain of the previous year, and will clear out the old to make room for the new. Now hear this. I will place my residence among you. I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Do you see the point again? God is declaring in these two books that he will take up residence among his people. He will dwell with them. He will be their God and they will be his people. So when God's people 
were unable to dwell with God because of their sin, he made a way for him to dwell with his people. Sin is still a problem, but God is working to rectify and redeem sin. God is making a way. He gave the instructions for the tabernacle and a sanctuary, he says in, in the Exodus verse. He said, hey, you need you to construct this thing. This is going to be my dwelling place. This is going to be my residence. And by definition, a tabernacle is like a big tent. It's this big tent. It's going to be, I'm going to travel as you're traveling. I'm going to be with you. You're in tents. I'm going to be in a tent. My tent might be a little different, but he's got these instructions. It's a dwelling place. It's a residence for him so that he can be with the people. Um, it's like a, it's a mobile, it's a mobile dwelling place. Place. I was going to say it was a mobile home, but that doesn't sound right. <laughs> this is so he could be with them and he could move with them. If God's people were going to be cast out of the garden and couldn't come to be with God, God was making a way for him to be with them. Pastor Josiah and I, we, we visited a sweet sister saint who was in an assisted living facility this week. And it, and it just struck me. Her health is failing. It makes it very difficult for her to dwell anywhere else but in this place where she can get the help and the care that she needs. But we can still go there and visit her, right? We can enter into the place, we can visit her. And in theory, uh, a healthy person could take up residence there, could get a room, could live there and commune with the people who can't live outside of that facility, right? Except this illustration I'm providing falls short, doesn't it? If you're thinking through good doctrine, you're like, wait, that's not the whole story. So maybe it'd be more like if a judge sentenced a man to death row in the maximum security prison and then went to live with that man in the prison, although the judge was free to go even though the man was a prisoner. But some of you are thinking through how that illustration falls apart too. That illustration doesn't get us all the way there, does it? It's, it's missing something. What's missing? What's missing is separation and sacrifice because of sin. There had to be these multiple layers in this tabernacle. It wasn't just a one-flap tent, you open it up and you're in. Multiple layers starting all the way with outside. Multiple processes, multiple stages, sacrifices, death, bloodshed, ceremonial cleansing. And when you get all the way into where God's presence was, there's a giant curtain Thick, heavy, separating man from God, and only the priest could go in there one time a year. There was separation. There was sacrifice to atone for sin. The angel with the flaming sword still separates creation from creator, doesn't he? The veil was necessary. There is still a sin problem. So maybe the illustration. I mean, I've been working at this and working at this. Here's the third Third stab at this. Maybe the illustration is like a person trying to get a better view and connectivity with fish by using a rowboat with a glass bottom. You can kind of get down there close to the water. But if the fish try to jump out of the water into the rowboat, they die because they can't live in the air. They can't live in the presence of the man in the rowboat that way. But this illustration still falls short. There's just not a good illustration for this. The separation protects Sinners. 
It's not a protection for God. It protects the sinners because they would die if they were to be in the pure and direct presence of God. They couldn't do it. The only answer for sin is death, and if they were to enter into his presence like the fish, they would die. God's way to dwell with his people was this tabernacle, this sanctuary. Okay, but don't be confused by the Old Testament picture. Okay, this is actually a picture for us to see. This is God's illustration to help us to understand. He needs us to see this. He needs us to understand that there has to be a separation, that he has to be in this tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's not because he can't, he can't do things. Theologically speaking, God is everywhere. He was all, he's everywhere. Not just isolated in this holy of holies. He's all-powerful. Our sin does not keep God away from us and does not push him out. And he can't, he, It's not like we have cooties, so he runs away. Theologically, that's not how it works. Our sin is not more powerful than God. Our sin cannot dictate what God will do or won't do. Our sin cannot dictate where he will or will not go. Our sin has no hold over God, but it does enslave us. It does dictate where we can go and where we can't go. It does dictate our relationship with God, our separation from God. And God is using this tabernacle as an illustration to show us the problem of sin and to show us the problem in the relationship between us and God. He gave us this visual picture, this reality that he wrote into time and gave it in the revelation of God so that we would see the problem, the sin problem, the relationship problem, and what it would take to redeem it. God needed his people to see a blueprint because that wasn't sufficient enough. He needed us to see a picture of what would ultimately be used to redeem God's people so that one day we could eat from the tree of life and dwell with God forever. The tabernacle is God's illustration and God's blueprint of something Better to come. The greater is coming. So God had people who were far off from him. And he was making a way for them to dwell with him. They get to dwell with God. They get to be close to him. The people who are far are being drawn close. But the tabernacle wasn't the end of the story. Not even close. It was only the beginning of the story. Because there's something much better coming. What's coming? Some might be like, oh, the temple. They're going to build this big temple out of... No, 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 no. The temple is just another tabernacle. It's just a little bit more permanent. But not permanent enough. We don't even have it, do we? And it got destroyed multiple times. It was just a more solid version of the tabernacle. No, something greater than all of that coming. So the question is not what is coming. The question is who was coming. If you would be so willing... Would you go to John 1, 1 through 14 is where we're going to look, or uh, 941 on the, in the Pew Bible. <clears throat> John chapter 1, 1 through 14. I think this will help answer our question. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. We could go through 18, but we'll just go through verse 14. I hope that you would read along with me in your Bible or on the screen. See for yourself. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a tangent. It's an important one for the prologue, but for those of you who aren't familiar with the book, the guy we're about to talk about is not the same John who wrote the book. Because spoiler alert, the guy we're about to talk about is going to lose his head early in the story. But then we're going to come back to the, to the prologue. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, let's pick this up again, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man. But of God. Verse 14. The Word, all this we've been talking about, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These first 18 verses, if we were to keep reading, and these 14 verses that we've read, they're the prologue to the book of John. The book, really, if you think about it, actually starts where uh, verse 19 or so. That's an introduction to all the stuff John is going to cover. It's the prologue and the purpose of his book. What he's letting the reader know here is what he's going to say in verse 20, 31, that you need to be compelled to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you can have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book, and these first 18 verses are the prologue of what's to come. John makes a crystal clear case through the book of John, that Jesus is deity. He's God. He's a second member of the Trinity. He's fully God and he's fully man. You're going to see that in the book of John. But right here in the prologue, he makes a crystal clear connection to Genesis, to the very beginning. It starts right in the construction of the first verse of both books. In the beginning! That sounds like Genesis. And it sounds like John. It's a connection that's important. And just... Just in case we miss it, where does the second verse of the book of John go? Back to creation. All things were made through Christ. He's clearly making sure that we know he's making a connection all the way back to Genesis. And John also makes a crystal clear connection to Exodus and Leviticus right here in the prologue. Let me read for you again Exodus 25.8. They are to make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. I will place my residence among you, and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Now hear John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see the connection? 
You see it? Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, and he entered humanity to dwell among his people and to reveal himself to his people, just like God entered the tabernacle to dwell among his people and reveal himself to his people. Going to get a little nerdy here for just a second. I firmly believe we can read our Bible and we can see much, but on rare occasion, sometimes the original languages have something that we don't see as well in English. So bear with me for a moment. The Greek word translated as dwelt here. This is eskenase. Es, sorry. See, we don't all need to have Greek, but this is helpful. Eskena. Oh my goodness. Eskenusen. Eskenusen. I'm sorry, I could not get there for some reason. Eskenusen. That's the word. And the root of that is eskenao. Let's try this again. The Greek word translated dwelt is eskenusen, and the root of that is eskenao. Are we good now? Okay, there we go. <laughs> None of that's important. Okay, so don't worry about that. What is important is the definition. Okay? It means to pitch a tent. It means to dwell in a tent or to take up residence with this oddly strong emphasis in tenting, which I don't think most of us go tenting. We go camping. But, or it means tabernacle. Those are the words. So to say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us sounds really strange, doesn't it? We don't say that. In English, Young's literal translation of the Bible, which I kind of like, it was published in 1898, it's really hard to read. Uh, It actually says it just like that. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But it's kind of weird. Like, that's just not regular language for us, so it's not the most helpful. But most English translations, even if you look in your Bible, probably yours, will translate it as dwelt, but they put a footnote. And when you go down to the footnote, guess what it says there? Tabernacled. Or to pitch a tent and tabernacle. A lot of our Bibles will publish it that way. Unfortunately, most English readers don't read the footnotes, do we? We don't catch that and think maybe there's something more. We just don't do it. Dwell does not capture the heart of the Greek word here. And as English readers, it's easy to miss the original Greek language. And it's easy to miss the connection that John was trying to make, but I know that John's original readers did not miss it. Because when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, okay, and that's what they were reading, a couple hundred years before Jesus walked the earth in flesh, they translated the Old Testament into Greek because most of the readers were becoming Greek readers or Greek hearers. That translation is called the Septuagint. Guess what word gets used a lot of times to translate the word tabernacle? Skenau, the tabernacle word, skenau, dwelt. They would see and hear that connection with zero problem. As easy as you heard the first verse in the beginning and the first verse in the beginning. They would, they would see it. It's a significant connection that we ought not to miss. <clears throat> so why does God want to show us the Old Testament tabernacle dwelling with all the sacrifices and all that stuff in the prologue of the book of John. Why, why do we need to see that? Why? Because in a much better way, Jesus tabernacled in humanity to live a perfect life, the one we failed to live, to die on the cross and be the perfect sacrifice where all those other sacrifices failed so that God and man could dwell together. Amen. Jesus, the word, became flesh, and tabernacled among his people. 
That's the Christmas story. That's what we were singing about on the night Jesus was born, in Bethlehem, in the manger. God left all the magnitude of eternity and went camping. He didn't even go glamping because Jesus wasn't even that much to look at, the Bible tells us. He tabernacled among his people. God made a, a sanctuary. In Exodus, God told the people to make the sanctuary. In Jesus, God made the sanctuary. And he tabernacled to dwell among his people, among humanity, as a way to redeem the broken relationship that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And there's another place that John's readers would have saw this connection. Except it's not in the book of John. It's in another book that this apostle wrote called the book of Revelation. So if you would turn with me now to Revelation 21, it's pretty much the back of your Bible. We're going to look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. Page 1,103 if you're using that pew Bible. It says this, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. Guess what? The word dwelling in here, in verse 3, it's the same word. And the word live with them, in verse 3, that phrase, same word, skenao, tabernacled, tented, took up residence in a tent. Now, it's not that in the new heavens, and the new earth, in the holy city, that's come down, the new Jerusalem. It's not that in this city that needs no streetlights because God himself was the light for the whole city, that God is going to be living in a tent. That's not the reality. He's on the throne. He's in the center of the city. But God wants us to see the thread, the connection, the point that starts all the way back in Genesis 3 and runs all the way through all the working of the Old Testament where God was seeking to redeem his people, all the way to the pinnacle of the story. Jesus Christ tabernacling with the people, living a perfect life, going to the cross as the perfect sacrifice, being laid in the grave, raised from the grave, alive, never to die again, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, so that we too could be in God's presence, dwelling with him for eternity. God wants us to see the thread from beginning to end, the, the redemptive story and why. There are no barriers when we dwell with God here in this that we read in Revelation. There's no separation. There's no big curtain. Through our Savior, Jesus Christ, we are being saved, we are being redeemed to dwell with him in that place forever, better than the garden ever was. 
Matthew 25, or excuse me, 27, 51, tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the moment Jesus paid for our sins, all the sins laid on him, and then it pleased God to crush him for the penalty of our sins laid on Christ, the minute that happened, this huge, daunting, really tall curtain in the temple ripped from the top to the bottom in two to say, look, there is now no separation The man can come in and dwell with God and Christ with him. And together this relationship is being redeemed and restored. Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice in the perfect tabernacle. And he did everything necessary to make it possible for man and God to be reconciled once more. And then going back to John, the prologue, John 1, 12, it said to all those who did receive him, because his people didn't receive him, You're given the opportunity to receive him. You're hearing his story right now. You've heard it. You're aware. If you've come here more than once, I hope you've heard it more than once. You have an opportunity to receive Jesus. And in John 1.12, it says, To all those who do receive him, he gives them the right to become children of God. He saves us. He redeems us by believing that Jesus is who he revealed himself to be when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and revealed himself and said, this is who God is and this is how this works. If you would believe that he is who he says he is and he does what he said he does and he did what he said he would do. If you would believe, he says, and then you would let him call the shots in your life as Lord of your life. He says, you will have the right to become a child of God. That's his way of saying you're born again. And you will dwell with God in eternity forever. And yeah, it's not perfect right now. But you get to dwell with him even right now. You're still sort of looking through the haze of our sin problem. There is still some separation because we just keep sinning and he keeps forgiving us. And we're working through this round and round we go as he's redeeming us. But it gets better and better as we grow a little bit. As we grow a little more, we're getting closer to him. We're knowing him. That haziness of understanding who he is and how he leads us and how he guides us is getting a little clearer and a little clearer and a little clearer. And one day, should he not come back before then, like many of the fantastic saints that have gone before us, we'll breathe our last on this side of eternity and we'll breathe our first breath on that side. And when we do, and when we open our eyes, we are with God face to face with no separation nothing to block our view of the glorious grandeur of the living God who came to save us so that we could dwell with him forever and worship him forever and enjoy him forever. This is why Christmas is so wonderful. It is. This is is what we should be thinking about when we think about Christmas. The better tabernacle of God who came into the world, born in a manger of all places, to dwell among us, to reveal himself to us, and to die from us, for us. This is what Christmas is about, the perfect tabernacle, the perfect sacrifice, so that all those who would turn to him would receive the free gift. Merry Christmas, unwrap your gift. The free gift of salvation from God, the perfect answer to our sin. The true gift of Christmas is Jesus Christ 
who would leave this place, become flesh, camp. And it isn't all that great most of the time. Camp among us. He'd be with us. He'd walk among us. He would tabernacle among us. He would dwell among us so that through his work, we could dwell with him for all eternity. Let's pray. God, we owe you more gratitude than we can possibly offer. There's not, there's not enough we can do to say thank you. Lord, let us remember this all Christmas long. When we're standing in lines, when we're fighting with, with the people who are, who are cranky, when we're in traffic, when we're struggling, let us remember this as we see the trappings of Christmas and the advertisements that want us to buy more stuff and spend more money. Let us remember this when the idols are calling and tempting us to worship them. Lord, that it is you who are God. It is you who dwell among us. It is you who redeem us. Let us remember this at Christmas. When we think about that little baby in a manger, that's not where it ended at all. It ends in the new heavens and the new earth with your people dwelling with you forever. And it began where humanity messed it all up because you are so gracious, our good and wonderful and gracious king to redeem us, to restore us. God, I know right now there are people who are rejecting you. Maybe even in this room, maybe watching online. Maybe they don't really know, but if they're not embracing you, if they're not letting you call the shots in their life, then that's where they're at. I ask that you would save souls, that you would open their eyes to see you, that they would embrace you as their Lord, as their Savior, so that they could dwell with you forever that their affections in their heart would be to be with you in worship and in your presence, that they would just want more and more and more of you for all eternity. And Lord, that's my prayer that that would be us too. That Lord, we would cherish the fact that we get to dwell with you some, even looking through a little bit of a haze, and one day we will get to see you face to face in all of your glory in which we will praise you and worship you. Please help us to remember that this Christmas season. Please help us to respond, Lord, even as we take the Lord's Supper together, remembering what you did to make it possible, even as we worship you, proclaiming our praises to how good you are and how wonderful you are. Let us keep this ever in our mind when everything around us wants to distract us this time of year and have us fix our gaze on the wrong things. Let us fix our gaze, our eyes, permanently on you. And Lord, this Christmas season, may we celebrate ferociously because we see what it really truly means. Thank you, Lord, for dwelling among us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.